On September 15, 2016, Hazel Johnson's extended family and community gathered at the entryway of Allgale Gardens to celebrate her legacy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this microphone's kind of loud. Okay. I'm Jason Johnson, the eldest grandson of Hazel Johnson. And I just wanted to first thank everybody for coming out to celebrate her life and her accomplishments this morning. So give yourself a round of applause. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my aunt and the executive director of People for Community Recovery, Cheryl Johnson. appreciate you really coming out here to support us in this very special occasion. You know, my mother worked for many years in this, in this community. So we should be here today to salute, to say that we are having these conversations about environmental issues. We're talking about climate justice. We're talking about economic justice. We're talking about social justice. But now we need to get a little farther than the discussions and the conversation. We need to start implementing these opportunities in our community. So I want to just say to thank you for everybody that's coming out, my friends and everybody, because this is important. This is only the beginning of a future that we all equally should be proud of. Round of applause for the woman we celebrate today. By the end of the event, there was a new sign unveiled on 130th Street. You see it now when you get off the highway and head toward the gardens. It names 130th Street Hazel Johnson E.J. Way. This sign is the most visible acknowledgement and celebration of Hazel's legacy on the gardens and on environmental justice. But unless you got off the highway at 130th, you would never see it. So far, we've cataloged Hazel's amazing story and all the phenomenal work her and Cheryl have done in helping to build the environmental justice movement. Now this episode, we talk about her legacy and our collective responsibility to keep her garden growing. This is episode six. The center of the gardens. When Cheryl looks at this garden that is Hazel's legacy, she sees a garden flourishing and full of new life. We saved our community and now our community is historic. Now we're looking at doing economic development in our community. We're getting the rail line extension. So we're going to make sure that there are, there are some community benefit as a result of these development that's happening in my community. And it never happened in this area. Cheryl's naming these new investments, and she's right. There's never been this scale of investment in meeting the needs of the people who live in the gardens. We've seen through this series billions and billions of dollars invested in the area, but it's always been in service of industry. Now, in a new way, there's an opportunity for investments like that red line extension to be in the service of people. So I want to break down the red line a little bit for folks who may be unfamiliar with Chicago. Wow, Dame, you're the first person who's ever wanted the red line to be broken down. So we have a pretty historic train system, and each of the lines are designated by color. And arguably, the most prominent line of the system runs from the top of the north side down to 95th Street, about four and a half miles north of Allgale Gardens, and it's called the red line. In many ways, this railway is like a a central vein or a lifeline for the South Side and is one of the most prominent ways Black folks in Chicago access public transportation. So part of the alienation that all Gill Gardens has experienced as a community is not just because of the environmental hazards, but the way in which our public infrastructure and lack thereof disconnects all Gill Gardens from public transportation, leaving this community unnecessarily remote. The proposed extension that Cheryl talks about already fully funded and set to go into operation by the end of 2029, will make 130th, right near the gardens, the last stop on the red line. This is the potential to transform how the gardens relates to the rest of the city. All right, back to Cheryl. So our goal is to revitalize our community. We had to find a way to remediate the contaminants in our community. But that's education. That's training. That is jobs. We know how to dirty up America, but we don't have a remediation workforce to clean it up. So why not train the residents on how to remediate some of these contaminants in the community? We have enough information. We have enough technology. We have a lot of tools that we didn't have 30 or 40 years ago when we started to monitor and to learn how to clean up. 
And that's why we call our community an open environmental lab. We just need the experts and the science and the technicians to help us to identify and remediate those contaminants. And when we sat outside in the open air lab, Cheryl names how her value to this study can come from more than her as a spokesperson or a leader of the organization, but a subject to understand the long-term effects of living in Oak Hill Gardens. Just like I say, I've been living in this community all my life. Mm-hmm. I'm a great candidate for learning about, see what I've been exposed to. Yeah. You know, I've been out here 60 years. Are people still getting, like, screened or tested in any type of intentional way? That's, n- that's never done. That's never been done. You know, triage for environmental health exposures? No, that ain't happening. So who's going to do that work? Cheryl names a need for future studies, for implementation, for the development of community-facing science. In many ways, Cheryl exists as a generational avatar for the environmental justice movement. Her mother and her mother's peers birthed the modern movement. Her generation stewarded and continued that legacy. And now it is being turned over to folks who are the age of her children and grandchildren. And throughout our time learning from Cheryl, one of her primary focuses right now is how we have generational turnover for current and future generations to continue tending to this garden. Throughout the series, you've heard from members of our creative cabinet. These are the environmental justice workers who helped shape the show alongside us and Cheryl. The members of this cohort are some of the strongest environmental justice leaders in Chicago. They've led the fight that halted the construction of environmentally damaging industry. They've gotten the city to commit to 100% renewable energy, and they've built a meaningful, lasting, multiracial coalition that is sustained in ways Hazel could only have dreamed of. For this cohort of environmental justice leaders, Cheryl's been a connector between the seeds her mother sowed and the work that this generation is leading today. And they all point to how significant Cheryl and the lineage she stewards has been to them. Cabinet member Kyra Woods explains. I love my relationship with Cheryl because there aren't many people a generation above me that I have in Chicago that are as into this stuff as I am or who are leading this work. I love that intergenerational conversation of, and then when this person was in office or girl, let me tell you about this neighbor. And it's it's just rich in terms of being like two black women from Chicago, grown up in totally different times in many ways, but at the same time being united in this work. It brings me great pride and it's such honor to like carry on Hazel Johnson's legacy with Cheryl. Adela, another PCR staffer who grew up in the gardens, I think Cheryl saw me um, in a way. She didn't speak on it like a sit-you-down conversation type thing, but she did speak life, you know, into me. She did give me hope as far as what I can do and just reminded me of who I am as a Black woman and the determination and the hunger that I had to be something and be different from the people that I surrounded myself with. It's deeper than just what work base, you know, growing up in a, um, like I said, in a project community in the um, low-income area, you know, there's a lot of disparities and there's a lot of disconnect with families and things like that. My mom being a mother of seven children, she worked a lot. So we didn't have that close connection. And I feel like Cheryl was like a motherish figure, you know, teaching me how to speak up for myself in a working environment, making sure I receive the appropriate things that are entitled to me because of where I come from. You know, when you speak of where you come from, you're labeled and you're sometimes um, held back or not given equally what the next person may get from a different community. So I feel like she gave me that foundation to stand on, to be who I am and give me the things that I need in order to maneuver through this world. Being a black woman in a community, I have to continue to carry the torch that's being passed on from how Hazel Johnson passed it to Cheryl and how Cheryl Johnson passing it, continuing molding the clay for my daughters, just continuing to pass the torch from black woman to black woman, not letting the fire die that was set and lit and contributed to by so many people. Juliana Pino, 
One of my favorite things about Cheryl is her swagger. The first time that I was meeting her, she rolls up to our office in Little Village. It's like deep in a residential part of the neighborhood. She just like cruises up the stairs in these super stompy, very high fashion boots and a like purple on purple outfit with her handbag. And is like, this is the meeting on the second floor, right? And I was like, yes, come on in. She's like, girl. It's so nice to meet you. I'm Cheryl and it is hot outside and let's sit down. We just start chatting right away. You know, she happened to be early, which is a miracle because, you know, for our network meetings, we're coming from all over the South side. And so like meeting start times, touch and go. We ate tamales and she just starts telling me about her dogs and starts telling me about this other meeting she was in and that she was just shocked at the language from some of the facilitators who just still didn't seem to understand that there were actual people trying to just get basic answers and that those people just wanted to be listened to. And instead they were being talked over, they were being ignored. And she's like, that ain't right. And I'm not going to take it. the first five minutes of beating you. And she's like, you know, I love myself and I love my neighbors too much to tolerate that. You know, that basic statement is at the core of it, right? If other people don't value you or see your life as expendable, that's actually irrelevant because if you love yourself and you love your own people, you know that you deserve more. Yeah, that's a through line, right? Despite the inordinate, massive pile of structural violence that's been dumped on all guilds, Cheryl still brings love and positivity and optimism. And it's honestly remarkable. It's like a deep belief that is so reassuring, you know, on those days that are heavy and hard and that you feel like, wow, you reflect on the side of like nothing has changed, even though that's not actually true in practice, but it feels like that in the moment. Her love just brings you back to the why and is super different as a basis of organizing and is very much about care, caring for other people materially, physically, emotionally, or otherwise as as the sort of grounding of resistance, as opposed to just thinking like we're fighting injustice because it's not fair. It's that too, but it's, it's because we love ourselves too much to let this go on. Olga Bautista. I started organizing around the issue of petroleum pet coke piles that were being stored on the Calumet River. I was working with Peggy Salazar, who was the executive director of the Southeast Environmental Task Force at the time. And she actually connected me to Cheryl Johnson. I was just like in awe of the amount of history that her and her mother were bringing to the table was also benefiting neighborhoods like mine. I'm just glad that, you know, we've gotten to a place where we're able to recognize those divisions that were created so that we didn't organize together. (laughs) And they have been organizing together. At the street renaming ceremony that we started this episode with, on a day intended to honor Hazel, after a whole bunch of people had been talking and people were getting ready to leave, Cheryl stopped everyone in their tracks and was like, wait, you need to know who these two women are. Before they leave, we are the three Amigos. Peggy Salazar from the Southeast Environmental Task Force and Kim Wasserman from the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, or El Vejo. We are the partners in crime for environmental justice. We fight hard. That's right. Kim fight hard. Peggy fight hard. If y'all heard about the Peco situation, if you heard about the Crawford coal plant, fire plant incinerator over in the village, we, we're trying to make our environment healthy. These friends run three of the five organizations that make up the Chicago Environmental Justice Network. Led mostly by women of color, the org serve communities that face severe environmental and health disparities due to their close proximity to near sources of pollution. In function, this network is a way of groups that are doing important environmental justice work in Chicago to be in closer relationship and support each other in the work they do. For an organization like PCR that's so grounded in the gardens, someone could question what's the value of being part of this network that takes it outside of the boundaries of their neighborhood and focuses on the entire city. But for Cheryl, this coalition is what makes the work possible. It wasn't just all Gale. It probably was other ones that have not done the intensive research that we was able to bring out about all Gale. It happened in other neighborhoods, city of Chicago, even in um, what they call it, in the back of the yards area, where there was the uh, 
all the dead animal carcasses. Bubbly Creek. Look, all those houses that they built over there. They didn't care about the people living over there. And it was seeking out in their soil and everything like that. So I'm just saying, it's just, you know, we such a capitalist society at the expense of harming public health. This capitalist society is destroying public health. It's not just through toxic chemicals that we're eating, breathing, and drinking. But as Olga says, it's through these systems that disorganize communities that should see themselves in solidarity with each other. That solidarity has its greatest impact in people's day-to-day lives. Not just at the leadership level and not just as a point of PR or messaging. These coalition spaces actually create new opportunities for people to take care of each other that may not have been possible otherwise. Here's Cheryl with an example. I'm going to tell you one unique story with our training. There was a Hispanic guy that lived in Absent. We did not know he was walking the class from 127 and Western all the way to the guards every day and would be on time. When those students, those trainees learned that he was walking every day, these young people opened up their doors and allowed Franklin to live with him so he could finish the class. And guess what? Franklin brought his girlfriend and his baby. And he lived there till he was grad. He graduated. And those three people are still friends today. Now I'm talking about maybe 20 years ago. And for me growing up, both colloquially and in my own experience, there's this looming cloud of this air quote black brown tension. And I don't want to flatten it because there is a truth to those complexities in the community at large. But what we see in this story is within organized communities, the work of the last 20 years made it so folks are not just now learning about their interconnectedness, but already know it as a truth and a source of strength. This type of coalition takes time to build. 20-odd years after Franklin graduated from that program, one of the most significant environmental justice struggles in the history of Chicago was happening right next door to Olga Gardens on the southeast side. And that same coalition was leading the way. A company called General Iron for decades operated a metal shredding recycling plant on the north side of Chicago, right along the north branch of the Chicago River. Then several years ago, a huge real estate developer bought up that land with a bunch of city government subsidies to develop it into what amounts to a privately owned new neighborhood for Chicago called Lincoln Yards. That's a whole other podcast. We'll link to some info about it in the show notes. But as a result, this recycling plant And when I say recycling plant, that sounds positive, but really it was an enormous metal shredder was forced to find a new place to operate out of. And they have fixed their gaze on the southeast side. And as we know, this area is zoned for heavy industry, and there's already all kinds of environmentally devastating industry based there. The southeast side community, in coalition with the rest of the Chicago Environmental Justice Network and a wide array of other organizers, said absolutely not. They took on a multi-year campaign starting before the pandemic to try to keep the permit from being approved for this company to move in right across from a school. When we started working on this podcast, the campaign was still in full swing. And we talked to one of its lead organizers, Olga Bautista, who's also a member of our cabinet, about where the fight stood at that point and what she saw as a possible path toward a victory. So believe it or not, there was something good that came out of Trump I know it's hard to believe. Plot twist. <laughs> Didn't expect that. <laughs> it forced these Democrats, Biden included, to say, look at Trump. He's peeling back EPA protections. Look at this environmental racism that's happening here. Look what he's doing. Well, guess what? These guys are now in office. <laughs> if we cannot have environmental justice right now, in Algal Gardens, and in the southeast side of Chicago, we can never have it, not with the Democrats in power. Like, this is their chance. They talked all this jazz about how, if they are elected and what they're going to do, I want to see it. They can do it. They can deny General Iron's permit. There's no excuses anymore. That's probably the first thing that we need to do to start to repair harm that has been caused to the Southeast side is that we need to make an example of this situation so that every company who comes after General Iron is going to have to think twice about wanting to come in and pollute our communities. Almost a year after that first conversation with Olga, we checked back in with her once the decision about the permit came down from the city. 
Hello? All right. There we go. Perfect. So, between when we talked last in mid-February and now, some things have happened. Olga, you want to just uh, real quickly share what has happened uh, in the last couple of weeks? As you can see, I am completely overjoyed because the city of Chicago has denied the permit to General Iron. After three and a half years of organizing, fighting, advocating, press conferences, (laughs) hunger strikes, protests to Lori Lightfoot's house, protests to Susan Garza's house, I mean, all those things. And the city finally denied the permit, uh, which is incredible, incredible news. Mm. So how did you find out that this was the decision? Well, we had learned that uh, the decision was coming and that it was good news. But the announcement wasn't made until 2 p.m. And then I got the email. And it said the permit was denied. And there was a link for uh, their official report, 40 pages listing all these problems with the company. The city of Chicago went from calling them like, this is going to be a state-of-the-art facility and like all these things to like, they're actually bad players. There's lead, like really high levels of lead. Like I'm concerned about the workers that have been working there. Now, as you think about that moment, not just what did it feel like emotionally, but like what of what you can remember, what did it feel like in your body? You know? <laughs> I literally, I was trying to tell my mom quietly, like, I think we won. She was like, what? I can't hear you. But I hadn't said it out loud. And then I literally puked. <laughs> Gross. A little no, TMI. Very, very real. Yeah. And then when the news official news came, I just cried. All that hard work and like really like holding the line for so long. Cause like we essentially we we had lost. Like the the city wasn't gonna give them the permit until the EPA intervened and said you need to do a health impact assessment. But it took so long. I think it's just really incredible what like committed, ambitious group of people who have the same goal can accomplish the commitment of this group of people. is just incredible. I feel unstoppable. I feel like we can keep winning, keep fighting for our community. And I just feel sorry for any polluter who thinks they can come into our neighborhood <laughs> because it's not going to go well for them. We were in the middle of a global pandemic all the things that we had learned about winning campaigns in the past out the window. Our campaign actually started to do mutual aid. We were already organized. We already had trust built and we were able to help ourselves, our community out of the pandemic. It was also in the middle of like all of these racial uprisings that were happening across the country. Black Lives Matter marches in the Hegwish neighborhood, neighborhood that had the second highest voter turnout for Trump, second to Mount Greenwood. There was a Black Lives Matter march here. You know, lots of those emojis with the mind blown. Every time something like like the pandemic happened, you, you would think like it would shut down the organizing. It made us closer. This was like the beacon. We were like the light, you know, that was kind of keeping us going. And it wasn't me. I mean, it was it was really the youth uh, who really just took this on and was able to get us over the, the finish line and win. You know, we've talked about Hazel. What do you wish she could see about this moment in this fight and this win? This was like a multi-generational, multi-ethnic campaign that won. You know, had we not had <laughs> like all of the work that she had done to go all the way to the White House. And then this campaign and this fight went all the way to the White House again. It went all the way to the US EPA administrator, Michael Reagan. I think that, you know, we we really are standing on the shoulders of, of giants. And this is a continuation of wins that have happened in our community, like the work that they did to close the dumps, you know, the garbage dumps and, you know, to stop all of these things. Like, I feel like this like scrappy (laughs) group of 
activist from the far southeast side have just been doing this for so long. I hope that we are at a place where we can say, like, this is not going to happen again. Whatever happens here moving forward, we have to make sure that it's going to put us in a position where no polluters are going to get this close to receiving their full permits again. Thanks for hopping on. It's good to see your face. It's good to see you glowing in this wind. And uh, we'll talk soon. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. This coalition exemplifies how Cheryl sees environmental justice overall. It's an approach that truly does bring people together. What I love about the environmental justice movement is not, you know, we understand the practice of environmental racism happening with brown and black community. But it brings good people together in a commonality to understand that we all want to breathe clean air. Mm-hmm. We all want to drink clean water. Mm-hmm. You know, we all want to live in areas that are safe. That's the commonality. At its most effective, that coalition can even extend to the big green organizations, mainstream environmental groups that historically have not made adequate space for environmental justice in their work. A good example of that is the Ready for 100 campaign, which cabinet member Kyra Woods explains. The campaign that I was responsible for was Ready for 100 Chicago. We focused on guiding Chicago, the government, to making a commitment to 100% clean renewable energy as a city. We really were intentional about trying to build a coalition to inform what the goal should be. Unlike other cities, the coalition approach was something that we we tried to do here and we did here in Chicago and that other cities subsequently tried to do as well once we won our campaign. And um, Cheryl's name immediately came up and PCR as an organization to consider inviting into this space. That was amazing, you know, that type of access, because then you go and read some more and you're like, oh, my gosh, this literally is legacy. Um, And I think as another Black Chicago woman it was special, you know? It's like, I don't know that the senior staff member understands how special this is because I didn't have language for this when I was younger and I wish I did. And I wish I did in high school. You know, I wish all high school kids who wanted to be involved with the environment could do this level of work to better understand what's not just happening in their backyard, but is somebody's home, right? This isn't just about the other side of town. This is about where your friend lives. This is where, you know, somebody's father or mother is from. This is Chicago too. So. That was really special for me to meet her personally. And then to have her be so involved with the campaign, like it's an experience I will never, ever want to overwrite in my memory. We just really tried to stay close, right? Um, I think she recognized that I was somebody who was not just genuinely interested in advancing a commitment, but, you know, how we went about developing that was really important to me. And I think also honoring Hazel Johnson's legacy as a part of that commitment was important. And so Cheryl was very clear very early in the campaign that the city has never done anything to honor Hazel Johnson. And I said, well, as long as I have something to do with it, like, let's let's go. (laughs) You know, this could be the thing. So gratefully, we inserted a clause that acknowledges Hazel Johnson's legacy. On March 13th, 2019, Chicago City Council passed a resolution that included the following language. All right, let me put my resolution voice on. Whereas Hazel Johnson's trailblazing environmental justice work on Chicago's southeast side illuminated the linkage between socioeconomic, public health, and environmental inequities experienced in low-income and communities of color across the U.S., led to the passage of the first federal legislation to address environmental justice, and empowered strong environmental justice leaders in organizing in communities beyond Chicago, earning her recognition as the mother of environmental justice. Man, they love a comma. (laughs) I remember saying to Cheryl, like, I know it's not much. I know that this doesn't mean that inherently the city will do a better job about environmental justice. But now we may have a different stake in the ground and something to point to in terms of legacy or in terms of principle alignment and value alignment. So there, there was a, there was a point in all the editing where it's like, does this stay? Does this go? There's a little pushback. And I was like, you're not taking out that paragraph right there. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. I recognize that that paragraph in that resolution seems like nothing to some people, but that is just my seal on this to say, I see you. I respect you. I honor this work that I now am a part of. 
This isn't something that the environmentalist movement at large or conservation people came up with. Like that was concern and care (laughs) and love for family. That is us looking out for one another. And so that's what this legacy means to me uh, in terms of my bid for taking care of Chicago and Black Chicago particularly. Ooh, wow, that's the most emotional way I've delivered that ever. But it's true. And I'm honored to be able to do it with Cheryl. It'd be fine to have seen a talk or have been inspired by a speech, but to work with her and to run questions by her means so much. And it always comes with a, and my mother used to say, <laughs> uh, which is is also, I guess, a way to also ensure that the legacy is beyond an executive order. And again, it is about family and care. And this resolution is an important marker. We've seen in recent years an increase in celebration and awareness of Hazel as a historical figure. So in addition to the resolution and in addition to the street sign we opened this episode with, there has also been federal proposals to have Hazel on a stamp and a day designated in her honor. And these efforts are valuable. But awareness is not where Hazel would have wanted us to stop. People could all jump up and say, oh, she's so great. She did this. She did that. She did the other. She made us aware. But anyone else would have gone beyond just creating awareness for others, right? That's scientist and historian, Sylvia Hood Washington. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. That her gender and her race and where she lived, as powerful as she was, as transformative as she was, she didn't achieve anywhere near what she had wanted to achieve. And Hazel was super clear about what she wanted that legacy to be. Here's Cheryl reading Hazel's words from that Echo Magazine article in which Hazel directly lays out her vision. My wish for my community is for them to learn to stand up to fight for their rights. We have meetings, but when it's time to speak up, I turn around and nobody's there. A lot of us still have the fear mentality from slavery time. I would love for a center to be built here to educate our children and their parents, too, because most of them don't know anything about the environment. To me, the best legacy for Hazel Johnson is for them to create that environmental justice institute that Hazel wanted. My mother goal, in which I'm fighting for, her goal was to build this sea building to an environmental lab where we could have partnership with university government, and the community and businesses in this area to learn how to clean up this area and to prepare the future for those future jobs that what we're talking about, green jobs today. That was her vision. We see this vision in the organizing to try to make it happen, distinctly documented in the PCR archives at the Woodson branch of the Chicago Public Library. In the early 90s, PCR sent out a community support letter for an environmental justice institute. They asked their community members, Would you support an environmental justice institute that has an environmental lab for air, water, and soil, an emergency alert system, apprenticeship programs and trainings for workers, inspectors, and assessors, a local EPA office, a state-of-the-art auditorium, childcare, and a community environmental policing station to monitor the environmental traffic in Southeast Chicago? And then the last question says, would you like to be informed of the next meeting for the Environmental Justice Institute? So we can see, as early as 94, the efforts to make this happen were in motion, and Cheryl breaks down what this fight has looked like in the 30 years since. I think in 94, we did an assessment of that vacant school building in our community. Mm -hmm. And that's what we wanted to build the Hazel Johnson Center at. Mm -hmm. But the resistance for environmental justice and all that was so strong and high in Chicago, you could almost cut it with a... With assault. The you don't even need a knife. The resistance. From elected officials. Right, okay. And just policymakers and people of such. So they was like, what's this black woman from the project talking about environmental issues? Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody gonna listen to her. So when we got chopped down from that, we just walked away from it, you know? And last year, we learned that they was gonna demolish the building. Mm-hmm. We organized, got a little media out of it. And we saved the building. This is the building we're talking about. It's the old school built alongside the rest of Altgeld Gardens in the 1940s. It's been boarded up for years. Neighbors say it still has a lot of life left inside of it. We're here to challenge 
one of the systemic problems that we have in our community. Today, several community groups calling out a plan by Chicago Public Schools to tear down the former school building known as Building C. There's so much opportunity for this large building. They never give us the opportunity. There's been a vision for this community. There has been a feasibility study conducted on this building to say that it's a viable building. We want to reinvest and not disinvest. It's been too isolated, too forgotten uh, for way too long. Today, the mayor asked about Building C acknowledged the struggles of this far south side community. There's a significant number of needs, and I'm committed to working with um, uh, resident leaders, stakeholders in that community. A work in progress as the community attempts to keep their history from being torn down. We back at making at the Hazel Johnson Center. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So this time it's going to happen, okay. you know, because the CPS plan was that we're going to always use against them. It was the fact that they said they was going to tear down and make a playground. So you just say, oh, we could let, let the community play, but we don't want to educate, <laughs> you know, and we are educational system. Yeah. <laughs> How fucked up do that sound? You know what I mean? Yeah, I the C building, as well as the E building next door and up top, were all designated as part of the National Register of Historic Places in April 2022. That provides protection from them being torn down without proper oversight and process. The fight to stop the demolition of the C building was partially about what the building could become, this environmental justice center. But it was also partially to stop the harm that the demolition itself would cause. If you demolish a building, potentially loaded with lead and asbestos, that has its foundation in toxic soil that might have PCBs, what would be the effect on the people who live around that building? PCR justifiably, didn't trust that the proper precautions would be taken. And they had vision for how it could be used better. But what happens next? How does this long, vacant, and partly dilapidated building become this bustling hub of environmental justice? In order for this to happen, Cheryl and PCR are going to need partnership from the three institutions of power that have failed the most over the years. Government, the private sector, and academia. And those partnerships have the potential to be part of the repair we've been talking about. We envision a community revitalize that building, mm -hmm. partnering with experts, trade centers, or trade schools, mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. and use the state of art technology. Yeah. I'm very inexperienced in this, this, this thing that we're doing, trying to revitalize and get this building. Mm -hmm. And what it would cost to fix up the building. Mm -hmm. We want every level of government partnership into this. Mm -hmm. And it is all about preparing the future, you know, policymakers, scientists, because mm -hmm. they're going to need them, you know? Mm -hmm. So why not have a relationship or have a partnership with the local industry in this area also? Because they're going to need that workforce. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get the National Park Service to take acquisition of that building. I don't have the development skills to maintain and program for this building. We don't have that. PCI don't have that capacity. But the National Park Service had that capacity. And they can allocate resources to keep the building up. Cheryl is laying out a vision for a partnership model to get the center built. And she offers a proposal of a specific governmental partner. She also names the ways that the center could be beneficial for local industry, providing trainings for the types of jobs that they'll need. But what about our old friend academia that has a lot to offer in terms of research capacity and funding, but as we've discussed, has historically had an extractive and inequitable relationship with the gardens and other environmental justice communities. And the process of making the Hazel Johnson Environmental Justice Center a reality could be a really fruitful process building towards repairing this historically exploitative relationship. Scientist and historian, Sylvia Hood Washington. She didn't work for her name to be on the street. She was working for environmental health equity. Wouldn't it be nice, since she is the mother of the environmental justice movement, for them to finally give her that institute with her name after it, with Black folk and people of color in charge of it, and not using the, the slave paradigm that gets you out there working in the field, picking the crops, and then they take it home. 
and make the profit off of it. If we had had an environmental justice institute, which Hazel had envisioned, we would have had people studying about Flint and everywhere else before it even emerged. If she had had the institutional support to create a formal partnership with those institutions that were sending people in there, that if you're going to do this, then this is how you will support us. Ask for an environmental justice institute that truly uplifts the community, that truly is a legacy to her. So these three pillars of institutional power, the government, the private sector, both sides of it, industry and philanthropy, and academia, are needed to help build the center, needed to help the garden grow. Well, coincidentally, the figure that arguably has the most connection to all of those pillars is in Chicago already. Benny the Bull? (laughs) Benny does have the plugs. But no. This feels like a good time to return to the relationship with the former president who promised to come back to the gardens with resources and change in hand. Here's an idea that was floating through my head. It was a political controversy because Hazel sort of like slam dunk Obama when he was running for president. Get the right group together and set up a meeting with Michelle Obama and Barack the next time they're in Chicago and ask them to fund this institute. Pull on his heartstrings. He claimed he was out there as a community activist working with Hazel. As I said at the beginning of this conversation, there are streams of people coming through there, getting their credentials, getting their creds for being activists. What did you bring back to it? You see what I'm saying? Let him check the box that he worked with her. But now, don't let them off the hook by being part of the many, many, many who flowed through there and did not give back. You know what he do for Chicago. I see all the other presidents do things for their neighborhood where they come from. Oh, they're building his library, a billion dollar library that took public space. And it's important to note that unlike all previous presidential libraries, the Obama Presidential Center will be the first that is not publicly owned. And you can hear Cheryl making that critique, which brings us to an important point. We are currently proposing a path of repair relative to the relationship Barack Obama had to Hazel, Algel Gardens, and PCR. But earlier in this series, we heard Cheryl name that on a personal level, she feels like the harm is irreparable. Cheryl's personal feelings are valid. And she and Barack Obama may never be friends or cool again. So this isn't about fixing the relationship with Cheryl. But from where we sit, this is more than a petty beef. This was a communal harm, committed by a figure in power. Therefore, there's a collective responsibility in calling for and building processes for repair. The Obamas have the responsibility and, almost more importantly, the capacity to help make Hazel's vision come true. Which, on one hand, could serve as a sense of a cosmic apology, but more importantly, can help empower the people of Algel Gardens, the Southeast Side, and the environmental justice movement overall. But when we say empowerment, what needs to actually be in the building? in order for it to be this cultivating force that helps the garden grow. We asked folks working and living with and around PCR what they think needs to be included. One of the things, if I was sitting in like on one of their committees or something like that, I would stand on more towards raising up some individuals to understand what policy is, to understand like the legal ramifications of it. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say necessarily you got to go to law school, but just to be able to like read a statute, know what the purpose of a bill is, how it go from, you know what I mean, a proposal to, you know what I mean, the House floor, the Senate flow, get voted on and then get passed or go through the veto session because you're going to always run into roadblocks. You're going to always run into critics. You're going to always run into people who, don't want to see your vision succeed because it's counterproductive to theirs. But having somebody on the team that understand that ideology that can see that whole process through. I think that would be the, like the one thing that i add just off the top of my head. I think that's awesome. I would even love to incorporate my spin class over there. Uh, right now I have uh, 18 bikes that I do spin class with, I would not mind providing some fitness classes for the community because we know the diabetes rate and the hypertension rate is drastically high in the African-American community. So it is my life's mission, again, to not only provide spiritual guidance, but for our natural bodies as well. 
See, I'm looking at a lot, a lot of STEM programs. I'm looking at a lot of education versus being a teacher where we actually educate them. Um, I see a lot of community involvement there because we got a lot of residents out here who actually are thirsty, but no needs have been met because we don't have the resources. They need some help and they need some direction. And that's what we're here for, to educate them, to help direct them in paths in which they want to go. What I've heard from folks is like there should be a museum or some sort of like educational component about Hazel. We want it to be like a space where organizing and training can happen. Obviously there needs to be like a kitchen, like food is a really important part of building community. We've talked a lot about having job training, so there would be space for that, especially around solar and some of the trades. Um, and outdoor access, so I don't know, canoes and kayaks and all of the things to enjoy the river that we have and, and the woods that are so underutilized. So I think those are important, but really the legacy is about people in this neighborhood and in EJ neighborhoods across the city and the country leading the struggle for the change they want to see, which is what Hazel Johnson did. Not only would that seat building be Hazel Johnson Environmental Center, it'll be our new home too, because we haven't found a solid placement yet, but we're looking for that to be our home for PCR as we build our capacity and move forward towards our vision. Cheryl's heard these dreams of what the center should include and builds off of them as she describes what she hopes the center will contain. We want to create a museum in there, an environmental justice museum, to showcase people around the country, you know, trying to save their community. And to have a little cafe where, you know, we can sit and talk and drink protein juices or some coffee, <laughs> you know, and the other one would be associated to training. Getting people prepared for this red line extension Construction is always needed. Infrastructure, look at all the infrastructure. We got thousands of bridges that need to be prepared, but how many people in my community know how to do that industry? Nobody. Why not teach people how to revitalize their own community? And then they appreciate it more and they will value it more. We taught kids maybe three summers ago, you know, teaching them about how to save the trees out here. You know how much pride I brought to them kids just about learning about, yeah, I pruned that tree, I, I planted that tree. And that's just a tree. If we could plant other things that are positive for our community, in our community, people value that more because they was at home. That should be her legacy. And until we do that, and I'm not being mean, I'm not interested in any more streets being named after. Give me something that says that her work and what she brought attention to is resilient and is thriving and is reproducing itself. When we started building this project almost three years ago, our central question was how could we, as media makers and movement members, contribute both to making sure Hazel's work was being properly honored and that the work that PCR was doing today was being supported. We've learned that there are two answers to that question. And that's where you come in. We're not raising awareness for the sake of awareness. This isn't just another podcast for you to have a fun factoid to pull out at a dinner party. We see you as a base to be activated, to continue the work, and to continue this legacy. One, we all have to help the Hazel Johnson Environmental Justice Center be built in Alcow Gardens. As we named, it's going to take reparative support from government, academia, the private sector, but it's going to take all of us, too. To get this done, and especially to get this done right, it's going to need people. And we can't be solely reliant on powerful institutions. Building the Hazel Johnson Environmental Justice Center will require mass advocacy, volunteer labor, plugging in on programming, and dollars from everyday people. This is what it takes to build an institution that actually serves people. So right now, you can go to peopleforcommunityrecovery.org, go to the Join Our Fight tab, click Donate, and begin supporting. We'll also have more info in the show notes about how you can support the work of PCR in helping make that vision a reality. And the other answer to that question requires something a little different from all of us. One of the clearest ways that we can honor Hazel's legacy is to bring that same critical lens and dogged determination to understand why 
where we live is the way it is. Whether you live in a community that has borne the brunt of environmental racism or has been structured to be partially insulated from its harm. And as always, Hazel had the perfect metaphor for how we all have to fight for the places we call home. Oh, how she should say this? She used to say, living in your own shoebox is better than living in anybody else's mansion. But you have to take care of your own shoebox. And Hazel left us tools for how to take care of our own shoebox, even when the challenges have expanded and evolved past what she saw in her lifetime. And for us, those tools take the shape of a methodology, what we call a Johnsonian approach to organizing, which will be a helpful framework no matter where you are. One, a dogged inquiry to learn everything you can about the environmental factors affecting you, your family, and your neighbors, whether that be in air, soil, water, food, in your work or learning space. I think Hazel Johnson saw a problem in her community and wanted an answer. And she talked to everyone she could to find that answer. And I think if there's nothing else people take from this documentary, it's nurturing that sense of curiosity and not stopping until you get an answer. Two, an intentionality about connecting the dots. As Hazel understood, the problems are interconnected and so are the solutions. And we need to take intersectional approaches in our fight for justice and repair. That ability to make those connections in terms of how we as human beings function on the planet and what we do to cause trouble or try to stay healthy, that was a link that she was able to make. That's her major contribution to be able to tie together those movements and those ways of thinking. And three, lifelong commitment to care, nurturing, and relationship building as the grounding of our politics and intergenerational struggles. She didn't mind fighting. You know, she fought for her kids and she fought for her community. And when I say literally fight for her kids, my mother literally fought for her kids. <laughs> she just felt that she was just doing things because she cared. It wasn't to get any credit or admiration. She just thought that this is what God told her to do. And she just did it. She wasn't suspecting no trophy. She wasn't even expected to be called the mother of environmental justice. All that came from her heart. From listening to this story, this idea of this heart-based organizing can seem obvious or like a given. But for decades, this idea of care and nurturing was antithetical to what organizing was, quote, supposed to be. And ultimately, these unsustainable approaches are less successful in building transformative power. Olga talks about how she, like so many other mothers, including Hazel, found their work more difficult because of the expectations of who was supposed to be leading the work and how that work was supposed to go. I have had to fight very hard to create space for myself uh, with a baby on my hip. It wasn't just space for me, but it was a space for the baby that was on my hip. And I know that Hazel was going through the same thing, having to figure out childcare having to figure out how to cook dinner when these meetings are happening at night. It is a huge, huge challenge. And we have this style of organizing in Chicago where it's just like you come in, you meet, we have a strategy session, everybody gets you know their, their marching orders, you go out, you do it, and there's a constant revolving door of activists coming in and you're training them. That is not sustainable for moms, especially single moms, especially widows like Hazel was. You can't just be pushing people so they have nothing left because some people are showing up with already nothing left. You had to start creating a culture of care, and that's much harder. And some people don't have the patience for that. They just want to know what's the thing, what's the action. And that's not going to work in a community, in a movement that's led by women and is led by mothers. The same strategies that Hazel developed for how to care for her neighbors in Algal Gardens can provide a framework as we work to both build pathways of survival and the infrastructure of a just transition in the face of the devastating effects of climate change. Let me say it this way. Let me put it to you this way. If the environmental justice movement has succeeded, we would be in much better shape with climate change. She always said it was an either or. Either we're going to do this shit right or we're not going to do it right. And we're going to see the change in our weather pattern, what we call climate change today. So change is inevitable. It's going to happen. Fossil fuel is a major problem to climate change that we are experiencing today. 
you have a whole lot of people that are suffering from black lung disease from mining and and the crew oil and that whole production has been so antiquated. We're almost going retroactive with technology today. Windmills, wind turbines been around forever. <laughs> and we're trying to capture sunlight for solar. Well, they've been practicing that a long time ago to cook food. You know what I mean? Today, we seeing those cost benefit was where we should have stayed instead of digging. We progressing and regressing at the same time because we already used to do the stuff that we're trying to do now. You know, when you look at green capitalism, I just don't want us to be exploited and, and allowed it to be superficial. You know, it's just like greenwashing. You know, I'm just going to say these things, but this shit is really not going to happen for these folks. Or these, or our planet, or our community, because the people think they are far removed from because of their status. It's not about that anymore. It's a choice that we all gonna have to make. If we're gonna breathe clean air, or breathe dirty air, we're gonna drink clean water, or we're gonna drink contaminated water. We're gonna live on land that is healthy or not healthy. That's the commonality for all of us. In the face of ensuing crisis. Key figures in government are, for maybe the first time, really considering what taking this Johnsonian approach would look like. Deborah Shore, who runs the region of the EPA that includes Chicago, told us last year about how the EPA, working with the city and the state, was developing the tools for a cumulative impact assessment that would cover the entire city. If you remember, this understanding of cumulative impact was at the core of what Hazel was demanding back in episode two. Right now, our staff at Region 5 is working to develop an approach and uh, what role people in communities can play. We hope we'll be able to establish something that's durable and that will last. Now, as we finish up the project, that ongoing citywide cumulative impact assessment, which unfortunately has the acronym CIA, is at the center of an executive order that the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, issued in one of her last days in office. This executive order to advance environmental justice for all Chicagoans ensures the completion of that assessment, formally establishes the structure and role of a community advisory body charged with carrying forward environmental justice actions, and requires the city to develop and implement robust community engagement standards, among other protections. In many ways, it mirrors Clinton's executive order from 30 years ago, but it's the first time that Chicago has made this commitment. Cheryl's quoted in the city's press release, and she says, People for Community Recovery and other community-led environmental justice organizations have been fighting for decades for policy change to prevent further harm to overburdened communities like mine on the far south side. We're encouraged to see city government value the lived experiences of people on the front lines of the environmental justice struggle. The executive order solidifies a strong foundation for future policy change. And we look forward to continuing this future work and partnership. She's the only person who's not a city official, quoted in the press release. And as the transfer of power on the fifth floor of City Hall transitions from Lori Lightfoot to Brandon Johnson, we've already seen Cheryl and other environmental justice workers invited into decision-making in a way that's never really existed in Chicago before. Cheryl, Olga, Juliana, and Dr. Linda Ray Murray are all on subcommittees that are part of Brandon Johnson's transition team. Of course, we don't know how this will all shake out, but it is exciting to be finishing this project in a time where possibilities for real repair feel a little more in reach. And it is from this vantage point that we can finally actually evaluate the work. Throughout telling this story, you might have noticed we were really struggling complicating these notions of wins and losses for these distinct efforts and fights. And sometimes we struggled and asked ourselves, are we being too critical? But in viewing this embodied legacy of folks taking this immense responsibility in the tradition of Hazel's work, it's clear that an 18-month to four-year campaign cycle is not the appropriate timescale to really understand the impact of Hazel Johnson. So as we look nearly 30 years from the original summit, or even more than 40 years since Hazel established the work in Allgill Gardens, we can see the real victory, and the people leading this work who see themselves in Hazel's legacy, and a new structural reality that empowers them to move the work forward. You've already heard from so many of these folks, and we asked a few of them how they see Hazel living on in their work. 
The way I see Hazel's impact in myself and the way that I approach the work and the world is to approach it from a place of relentless inquiry, to demand answers, to not only ask about the table where the decisions are made, but to question whether the table should exist. And it's about remembering where you're from and throwing down hard for the people you love. It's also about navigating the systems and figuring out the places in the systems where changes can be made to benefit the long-term possibilities for community well-being. There are so many leaders across the city of Chicago, across the state, that also have similar experiences like Hazel did and see themselves now and are, in fact, leaders in their communities. We have seen Hazel's legacy turn up in schools, and now there's room and space for young people to not just be part of it, but to lead. For a long time, our region has been on the radar because of that grueling work that Hazel did. It is very far-reaching, just the impacts that she has had across the city, across the whole country. It's a lot of Black women with a lot of loud voices in a community, and I just feel like they are respected and they are given those positions and those places in power because of what Hazel Johnson did, like I said, laying those bricks is now the stepping stone that they're standing on now and adding to that history of Black women and Black independency. I feel like for me to continue this legacy is to a closed mouth will not get fed, speak on what I need to speak on and help my community because a lot of people is not going to say nothing, but it's only these few group of women is going to have their big old mouth where they going to hear us, where they can't do nothing but hear us. So I want to be that group of women with the big mouth. <laughs> I think Hazel Johnson laid the groundwork to make it easier for my community to receive me and the work that I do in environmental justice, assuming they even know I'm doing it. I am not famous. <laughs> my path has been comparably easier because environmental justice is a known field. It has created traction to where you're having programs built around it. And the issues that play communities like mine are so well known, but the term is also better well known, or at least you can define it to someone and they're like, oh yeah, I know that happens to me. And so I hope that as I continue with the activism that I do and the work that I do, my community can feel a sense of pride in me, but also inspiration that they can do it too. My mother didn't believe how popular she was. The first thing I would really tell her, I was like, you got a street named after you and you the first in the country to have a street name with environmental justice in it because she wouldn't have believed it. The same politician who dogged her out are praising her today. That would have been unbelievable to her. So making her believe in the fruit of her labor just by telling her same story over and over to hundreds of community people around the country that was inspired by her I would tell her, I said, Mama, you don't know how many careers you have made only because of you. She probably said, girl, that ain't true. <laughs> I was like, yes, it is. To see the growth of society and embracing EJ is a blessing because at first we was getting our ass kicked. I think that she would just be happy to see people build careers just to see that this movement has grown. And people embracing it from all different section and the intersectionality of it. You know what I mean? So that's what she wanted to do. Inspire people to learn how to make our world a better place or suffer the consequences. I am dedicated to, to keep her struggle because she went through a whole lot to make sure that her work do not go down in vain, you know. And today to see people having a discussion about it. And I could hear her right now in heaven say, I told you so. I lay up a garden upstairs, I'm big, big time garden. So I went outside, I had planted these beautiful irises. 
I planted those 15 years ago. And now they're reproducing, they're self-naturalizing, thriving. That should be her legacy. Make it a garden of intellectuals. Make it a garden of future activists. Create the environment that they will thrive and reproduce. We want to grow that excellence and build back up that soil and make it healthy. So make Alkill Garden that space where we are creating our new crop of environmental activists, our new crop of environmental scholars who are dedicated to creating resilient and sustainable communities, not just in Illinois, but across the country. Let us be the children of Hazel. Let us be her flowers and her seedlings that will thrive and grow to make her legacy a permanent and ongoing legacy. Sylvia is speaking to a shift that has happened with us. We came into this project as documenters and storytellers, and we leave seeing ourselves as Hazel's children that have inherited both a responsibility, but also a great gift that offers a sense of pride and joy knowing that we are connected to this life-affirming legacy. We can see with so much greater clarity both the world we live in and the world we're trying to build because we're rooted in Hazel's garden. We are humbled and honored to bear witness to the leadership of these brilliant Black women. So we thank Hazel, and we're grateful for Cheryl for continuing her work and being so gracious and sharing her story, and all of the other participants and members of the EJ movement whose sacrifices and contributions so often go overlooked. We've learned from you that the seeds Hazel planted have sprouted all over the world. Hazel's legacy is alive. Her garden is still growing. I think that's about it, because I don't want to have no long drawn out thing, because I can tell you so many more other things that we have done together with some of these people right over here and over here too. And if we don't take no action, we're going to be a lost cause. Thank you. Help This Garden Grow is presented by Respair Production and Media with Elevate and People for Community Recovery. The show is hosted and created by us, Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger. Our co-executive producers are Sylvia Ewing, Ann Evans, and Cheryl Johnson. Our associate producer is Natalie Frazier. Our editor is Rocio Santos. And our consulting producers are Maurice and Judith from Juneteenth Productions. Special thanks to our creative cabinet, Adela Bass, Olga Batista, Tanisha Harris, Juliana Pino, and Kyra Woods. Our artwork is designed by Ariana Eggleston with additional multimedia support from Davon Clark. Help This Garden Grow was recorded in the Malika Ling Studio at the Breathing Room Space, a movement building center stewarded by the Let Us Breathe Collective. You can find out more about the work of Respair Production and Media at respairmedia.com. Get in tune with Elevate and elevatenp.org and support the work of PCR at peopleforcommunityrecovery.org. Much love to the people. Peace.